Well, gang, how many of you have heard of the singing group Passenger? Anybody heard of them? If you watch the, some of you don't have your hands up. Did you watch the Olympics? Any of you? Well, if you watch the Olympics, then they had this song playing all the time on sort of a, a passionate story about when things go bad, then all of a sudden, why is it we wake up? When you lose things, why is it all of a sudden they're valuable? When you're dating someone and take them for granted or married and take them for granted and they leave, why is it they're worth something then? Why weren't they worth something before? In fact, here's the words um, to that song, Let Her Go, passenger song that I know you've heard even though you didn't honestly raise your hands. Here it is. Uh, you only need the light when it's burning low. You only miss the sun when it starts to snow. We learned that this winter, didn't we? Only know you love her when you let her go. Only know you've been high when you're feeling low. Only hate the road when you're missing home. Only know you love her when you let her go, and you let her go. Staring at the bottom of your glass, hoping one day you'll make a dream last, but dreams come slow and they go so fast. Staring at the ceiling in the dark, same old empty feeling in your heart, because love comes slow, but it goes so fast, and you dive too deep, because you only need the light now, this is the part I want you to focus on. Again, he keeps saying this, when it's burning low. You only miss the sun when it starts to snow. You only know you love her when you let her go. So it goes on and on, and it talks about these, these things that should be important to us and these things that we should never take for granted and these things that should be valuable, and, and yet we do take them for granted, and they don't matter that much to us until we wake up one day and we realize they're lost. And then all of a sudden, their value goes up. Don't you wish you could tap into that as a broker or stock person, that you could figure out exactly when the value is going to go up? Well, according to the Word of God, it's when you don't have it anymore. Now, I'm going to be on a whirlwind tour this morning with God's Word, so if you think you can keep up, I dare you. I'm going to be giving you passages if you um, just want to sort of soak it in. It'll be also be up on the screen. You can follow along that way. Here's the first one, Matthew 9, 36. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were confused and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. I want you to think about what's going on in all these passages. This is the New Testament. These are crowds coming to Jesus. And when he saw him, he felt compassion. Why? He feels compassion a lot, but why in this one? Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Do people look like sheep? Not last time I checked. But there was something about them there was an awful lot like sheep, but not just regular sheep cared for in their pen, protected. They looked like sheep in a panic. They looked like sheep without a shepherd. He says right here, they looked confused. They looked helpless. Now, I wonder how many times we think we have our act together and we're doing just fine and somebody else will look at us and go, you look confused. You look helpless. You look like something's wrong. That's how Jesus saw him. He could see through everything in that crowd. Now, go back to the Old Testament. Same God of the Old Testament, same God of the New Testament. Numbers 27, 17 says, give them someone who will guide them wherever they go and will lead them into battle so the community of the Lord will not be like sheep without a shepherd. In fact, the, the, this theme, this, this danger, this lost position of sheep without a shepherd is all through the Old Testament and quite a bit in the New Testament too. Back to Matthew, Matthew twenty two thirty seven, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You who killed the prophets and stoned those sent to you. Now, those are bad things, in case you don't know. You who killed the prophets. Now, what are the prophets? They're messengers from God sent to help lost people find their way back to God. And so throughout the Old Testament, as God sends prophets to his people, they like to beat them up regularly. They like to pound them and steal their stuff and send them away. And, and in many cases with Isaiah and with Jeremiah, they'll strip them down, send them out naked and make fun of them. And yet... After he says this, look at what Jesus says. 
After he says, I've sent prophets to you because I love you. You stone them, you kill them. He says, but how often I've longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. And I don't know about you, but what amazes me about this passage is he's saying how awful they were to him. He's saying how awful they were to the prophets that he loved that he sent. And in fact, in one parable that we won't go over today, but that Jesus tells, he talks about sending a tenant. He talks about going away, a rich man going away and then leaving people in charge of, of, uh, of his estate. And when it comes time to come back or collect, he sends messengers and they send them away and say they don't care. They send the next one away a little more violently. They kill the, the, the last one who's actually his son and yet he still loves them. And yet he still loves them. Gang, there's something about someone who is vulnerable and confused and in danger and unaware and mostly, here's the word I want you to get, lost. There's something about somebody that's lost that stirs our hearts. Am I right? Because we're not going to get anywhere. Thank you so much, Emily. You, you're, I, I mean, you don't know? What, what happens to your heart, gang? I'm not going to let you get away with their silence. I'm not going to do it. I don't see Nicole DeVita, so I only have Emily today. I usually have Nicole. Nicole, you here? We didn't say anything. You let that go. You both, all right. All right, listen. How many of you, when you hear on TV, or you get it on your phone like I do, or whatever, get an amber alert, go, oh, that's boring, and just put it off, and don't even think about it. How many of you kind of freeze in your tracks when you hear an amber alert? Come on, raise your hands. How many of you? I do. I mean, an immediate sense of panic takes place. And then when they describe maybe the vehicle, right? I mean, we're looking for, I don't know, a white 1998 Chrysler van, and they describe it. Maybe they got a couple letters on the license plate. What do you do if you're driving down a freeway? I mean, you get your eyes peeled. Did you know when somebody's lost or when there's an amber alert or when they're looking for something that the police will often get thousands of tips within an hour? Most of them are way out there, but it's because people's radar just goes way up. And the value of that which is lost goes way up. Probably weren't thousands of people thinking about that, that young boy or girl or whoever the Amber Alert is issued for until they are lost. So what is this peculiar state that it does it? Listen, today I want to reveal to you the heart of Jesus when it comes to the lost, because it's huge. And it is a deal breaker. Because part of our threefold mission as a church at Impact is to rescue, raise, and release. The first part is Rescue. You cannot raise up children that have never been rescued. And you certainly can't release them for the mission if you've never met them and they've never been born again and they haven't been rescued. So the lost piece of our mission is the first piece. It's not the most important, but it, nothing gets started without it. It's a mission we got straight from Jesus. He passed it to us, you know, sort of like on a relay race. He passed us the baton. And unfortunately, many of us in Christianity and American evangelicalism, here's what's happening. We get, we're in the relay race and Jesus passes and goes, we're doing really good and we don't even reach out for it. We're running our own race and he passes the baton and we let it hit our chest and fall to the track and we just keep on running. Well, in this race called life, if you don't have that in your hand, you lose. It doesn't matter what your time is. Doesn't matter how fast you run in the wrong direction if you don't cross the finish line with that baton. So many of us have just dropped it. My son's into cross country and track and field, and he's awesome to watch, if I do say so myself. He's probably embarrassed that I'm saying that right now. Um, but I especially love watching when he does like the 4x400 or the 4x800. You'd think that these things all come down to just flat out running fast, but they don't. 
Uh, many times I'm watching some of the top high schools uh, in the whole region here. You can watch teams just come out of the gate and they're, un they're blistering fast, but they'll mess up that handoff. Have you ever seen this? They'll mess up that handoff and then if it's just a little bit off and there's a team that's maybe a little bit slower, but they do a clean handoff, they're going to win. They're going to win because the passing of that baton is so important. I was at the 84 Olympics in Los Angeles. I mean, I was at it. I was watching it. And America was favored to win. And we didn't win the gold medal. We were much faster. We were way ahead. But our, our pass of the baton was so bad, was so butchered that somebody else took the gold medal. I don't remember who took it. I just remember the bad handoff that cost us the race. Many Christians today, for all intents and purposes, have dropped the baton when it comes to reaching the lost. They just, it's amazing to me, they don't care. I mean, you would think if you were maybe a, a, a kid who has a story when you were young, a, a maybe a, a, a potentially tragic story where you were lost and you were in incredible danger, maybe a search party was sent out, and I doubt any of you here have that story, but if you did and, and they found you and much money was spent and then a celebration was there because you were in incredible danger, your life was right, you would think that for you, the rest of your life, you'd have a little soft spot for lostness, right? I mean, I would think you would. And if you would hear an Amber Alert or something like that, it would hit you harder than anybody else because you know what it's like to be completely conscious of your, your lost state. And I look at that and I think, well, isn't that what the believer is? Am I wrong, Nicole? Am I wrong? Isn't that what the believer is? I just got a nod from Nicole. Do you know what's missing from a nod? <laughs> Vocal stuff. It's just a nod. When, since when do you nod? You usually yell out. You, listen, I'm not wrong on that, right? I'm not. If, you, if Christians have been rescued, you were hellbounders. Well, anyway, gang, when you are rescued as a lost person, you remember it. When you are rescued as a lost person, it should stick with you. When you were a hellbounder, there's nothing light and fluffy about that, right? Maybe I should quiz you a little bit because we just had that big distraction here. So just so I know we're on the same page, what is a hellbounder? Just shout it out, Emily and Nicole. Somebody doesn't know Jesus, but that's, I'm, I'm going to be real blunt. That's, that's a nice way to put it. What's a hellbounder, people? Not saved? Not bad enough. Keep going, gang. That's getting closer. Who was that? That's kind of obvious. No, a hellbounder is someone bound for hell. Take the word apart. That's their destination. How long does hell last? Anybody? forever. How hot is it? Hell is still hot. Forever is still a long time. And if you've been rescued from that, you have been rescued from something significantly, infinitely greater than even an amber alert. Millions, millions of born-again people in the United States have sort of gone back into a spiritual coma after being rescued from something that traumatic. And now they see a world around them lost like they were and they don't care. So amber alerts are going off all over spiritually, everywhere. Everywhere you go, the grocery store, the gas station, everybody that you interact with, amber alerts are going off. And we don't care. Can you imagine that? We have learned to tune them out. So we walk and we meet people and we can even see someone and hear the way they talk and hear the way that they interact and all of this. And you know what? We can know for a fact that person does not know Jesus. That person is lost. And then what do we do? Stinks for them, doesn't it? We just sort of turn around and go along our way and go on our way. So Jesus is going to tell a couple stories about lost people to hopefully jar us out of this 
Spiritual coma that we're in, verse 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to Jesus. There's this big crowd and now the people that always give them a hard time, they're there too. They're always there. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled and complained saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Man, they are always able to find the silver lining, aren't they? They're always, I mean, they're always able to ruin anything. Every party has a pooper. That's why, well, I don't remember anybody inviting the Pharisees. They just show up. Question, gang. I'm going to have a lot of questions for you because you seem like you are drifting here. So here's the question. Why does this bother them so much, you think? Jesus hangs out with bad people. Jesus goes to parties where there's sinners. Jesus talks to people that should be below him. Why does this bother them so much? Listen, if you don't want to hang around with people that you think are so bad, if you don't want to hang around with the people that you talk about behind their backs, if you're looking down on people and you think you shouldn't be near them or they'll rub off on you or make you dirty, then don't do it would be my suggestion, right? But what do you care if someone else is? Not only do we think you shouldn't do that because we have this hierarchy, we, we hate it when people hang out with sinners. Now, I wonder why that is, and that's important, so hold that thought. I wonder why it is that bothers people so much and it bothers these religious leaders so much. They don't want to help the hurting and the marginalized and simply don't do it. But why rag on Jesus? Because he does. And later on the disciples, because they do. Gang, there are cynics who have tried to tarnish good people in this world. And, and, and most recently, I know she died years ago, but Mother Teresa. I mean, when they do polls in the United States, who's the most favored person in, in history or whatever, female, the number one person consistently ranks as Mother Teresa. Mother Teresa. And let me quote to you some things that I didn't even know still go on about her. In the 1990s, after Muggeridge had died, this is somebody that greatly supported uh, Mother Teresa, but with Mother Teresa still active and alive, obviously, the late Christopher Hitchens launched an aggressive attack on Mother Teresa with a document documentary and a book aimed to inflame called Hell's Angel and the Missionary Position, an obviously crude um, uh, allusion to something else in age that I guess he thought would be an attention grabber and funny. These polemics didn't reflect the truth, but they did manage to fool a number of people about Mother Teresa. On March 1st, three Canadian academics released a report on Mother Teresa, reviewing the criticism that this earlier guy had done. Darkly entitled, Mother Teresa, Anything But a Saint. Now, I want you to listen carefully at the types of things they say about her. In their article, these colleagues cite a number of problems not taken into account by the Vatican and Mother Teresa's beautification process, such as her rather dubious way of caring for the sick. Did you catch that? She's bad because she had a rather dubious way of caring for the sick. What does that mean? They didn't say anything, right? Well, you didn't hear about her dubious way of caring for the sick. What is that? It was dubious. And by that you mean super dubious. I mean, they don't define it. And it goes on. It gets worse. Her questionable political contacts. Questionable by who? Who are you talking about? Her suspicious management of enormous sums of money that she received. Questionable by who? And her overly dogmatic views regarding a particular abortion, contraception, and divorce. Her overly dogmatic. She's a bad, evil person because she believed the unborn child should live. She's a bad person because she believed that people who are married should stay married. It's nasty, isn't it? 
So look what they're doing here. These aren't exactly bad things. They're simply playing a game I call fill in the blank. It's very effective. Often much, much more effective, gang, than having actual evidence on somebody. Have you ever noticed that? Simply get people guessing about somebody, and you can ruin them. You can really mess them up. In fact, if what you've got on a person, even if you've got some stuff, but it's really not that juicy, it's not that big of a deal, just leave it out. But make the question that alludes to what you think they've done so juicy that they fill in the blank with something better, right? Some of you going, this is a confusing game. How's it played? Oh, please. Turn on the TV. Turn on the... I mean, just... We play it all the time. Billy Graham is another one. Right, and let me, let, me, let me give you how they do this with Jesus. Jesus hung out with drunkards, so he must be fill in the blank. Jesus hung out with sinners and carousers, and he was friends with prostitutes, and he must be fill in the blank. Billy Graham's another one that's greatly admired. He usually comes at the, at the top of American polls um, when you talk about favored and, and adored uh, <clears throat> male figures. While obviously not Jesus, Billy's still a beautiful example of what a Christ follower should be, I think. 95 years old now. Did you know that some people devoted their entire adult lives to tearing him down? There are ministries that have risen up completely to bash Billy Graham. So who would do, who's got a ministry to do that? Well, here's one. Here's a whole other uh, ministry that, if you've ever heard of Westboro Baptist, raise your hand if you've ever heard of this church. I, I, I can't believe I just used the word church in connection with them, but they're a Baptist church, supposedly, which should be good. But Westboro Baptist Church, they have nothing to do, basically, as far as I'm concerned, with God and his word. They've dedicated their lives to bashing sinners and, and, and hurting those who are grieving. It's sick. It's sick, but there's people that have done this. Here's one guy, Fred Springmeyer of Portland, Oregon, has written articles to try and convince people that Billy Graham is a secret Satan worshiper. No evidence, just fill in the blank. Then there was the small fringe Baptist group again, give them Baptist a bad name, who followed Billy Graham from crusade to crusade for over 30 years, missing only occasionally one or two in, in maybe uh, communist countries where they couldn't get in. They would literally pay to fly 10 or 15 or 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 people out to just pick it outside of his crusades wherever he went, yelling at people not to go in there because he's a heretic. They dogged him nonstop throughout his time as an evangelist. Is this really what God calls believers to do? Is this really what... So kind of keep that on the, on the one side. I want you to see how, how Christians can sometimes be against their own. Maybe this will help. You see, the religious leaders in Jesus' day thought very highly of the law. Give them that. You know, the Old Testament, the Torah, thought very highly of it. Sort of. Unfortunately, they didn't really understand what its true purpose was. Do you know what the true purpose of the law is? The law is a pointer. It, it points us to something. It's not perfect. It's flawed. It can't save you, and obeying it can't save you. All it can do is show you how lost you are. You can't, the more you follow the law, and the more you see how many laws you can't follow and how many laws you break, the more you see you are in need of something in your condition. And that 
Something is something perfect. There must be a sacrifice for the breaking of the law. And that's why they sacrifice lambs and goats and different uh, sin offerings in the Old Testament. But lambs aren't perfect, right, gang? Any more than this microphone system is perfect. Lambs aren't perfect. So when you sacrifice a lamb, even though you find the best one that you can, you're going to have to do it again next year and the year after and year after. Why? Because they're a, a sort of a shadow that points to the shadow caster, right? And the perfect that came. And then when Jesus gave his perfect sinless life on the cross, all sacrifice should have and did cease. Because that's the perfect sacrifice for those who are lost. So they believed in the law. But they didn't know that the law pointed to the perfect sacrifice and pointed to the, to the coming Christ that pointed to Jesus. So they ended up putting the book before the author. And creation ahead of the creator and the laws and the rules over the people they were meant to protect. So why did Jesus, again, I'm going to ask the same question. I just gave you that little history lesson. Why did Jesus bother them so much? Well, because he seemed to almost take the whole thing for granted. I mean, he just seemed to take the whole thing for granted. The law. He seemed to kind of blow it off. He seemed to not treat it with a respect, or at least the way that the religious leaders wanted him to treat it. He risked defilement constantly. Did you know that? A lot of times Jesus didn't wash his hands. I know some of you are scandalized by that, but it's true. A lot of times he didn't wash his hands. Sometimes the lepers he healed, not sometimes, let me just put it this way, almost every time he touched them. You're not supposed to get within 300 feet of a leper. And here he is putting his hands all over him like he, like he loves them. That's just breaking the rules. You just don't do that. So he touches those who have leprosy, and he neglects to wash in, in the Pharisees' prescribed manner, which overdoes it, which isn't even in the Torah in the first place. And worse yet, he showed complete disdain for their sanctions against associating with certain classes of people which is also not in God's word. Instead, he came to offer salvation to these same people that the Pharisees said you shouldn't even hang out with and to assure them, worst of all, that God actually loved them. Oh, way over the top even that God didn't really even come for the Pharisees and the religious leaders. God came for these low lives and the sinners. Can you imagine how offensive Jesus was to them? There's one thing about Jesus. There's so many things, but here's one thing lately that I read about him over and over again that I have yet to get. I simply can't get this. I'm confessing this as your pastor. It is so hard for me. Jesus didn't seem to worry about the accusations. He knew who he was and he knew what he did or didn't. He didn't worry about the accusations. Instead, he continued going to those who needed him most, regardless of the effect it might have on his reputation. Did you, have you noticed that? Anybody read more than one book of the Bible? Have you noticed that about Jesus? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. We're supposed to be reading through the Gospels right now. If you're doing that, you can't miss it. I mean, they ridiculed him. His reputation for a lot of people was shady. Well, you know, he goes to those parties. I've never seen anybody go to those parties and not do something. You know, he hangs out with drunkards. Never been in a room full of drunkards where everybody wasn't drunk. Then he hangs out with prostitutes and the people that, that we call them pimps today, the people that, that bring together a certain number of prostitutes and use them to make money and abuse them and all that. He hangs out with them and he's the only male around, so he must be, oh yeah, it was that bad. Fill in the blank. 
And yet I read through the New Testament and, and I can't find Jesus going, wait a minute, guys, hang on. There's no evidence for that. Listen, you, you're welcome to come to the parties and watch me. Now, I do go and I do uh, hang out with these people, but quite honestly, I don't do what they're doing. And, and so it's not fair for you to talk to me like that. I don't see that. He just loved the lost and, and forged ahead. All right, so hopefully I've, I, I've created a picture that some of the people that ought to be the best and the most religious and, and, and good are tough to love. But this isn't about them. It's about those dirty, defiled, supposedly worthless and marginalized people that we call in the church lost because they matter so much to Jesus. Uh, let's take a different approach. What kind of love do you think would care so much for a person? It's easy to love somebody who's loving you back, isn't it? Isn't that how relationships start out when you, you know, boy likes girl, girl likes boy, some around seventh, eighth grade, you get your first crush, and as long as they're loving you back and making you feel good, you like them back, and you, you know, it's reciprocal. And then when they treat you bad, you don't like them anymore. But then when you mature a little bit, you realize that relationships take work. But very few of us mature to a point, I think, where we see someone who treats us bad and is completely abusive and they're out to get us and might even want to kill us and we still love them. Very few people get to that level of love, which is called agape love. It's a Greek word for a love that is, doesn't have to be reciprocated. It's a love that is unconditional. It's the kind of love Jesus has for the lost. Who would love or care so deeply for an enemy? That's powerful. That's the love that Jesus had for the lost. Let me show you some examples of it. In Jesus' last physical week here on this earth, which we're going to be talking about in the weeks ahead because Easter's coming, the schizophrenic group of lost people went from loving him and adoring him and having a parade for him. By the way, if anyone's ever had a parade for you, you're pretty popular. So they have a parade for him, which theologians and historians believe could have been upwards of 300,000 people at this parade. And five days later, a smaller group, but probably tens of thousands of those same people are gathered in a humongous pagan Roman courtyard with a man named Pilate giving them a choice between a murderer named Barabbas and this same Jesus they had a parade for. And they picked Barabbas. Now, I've seen fickle little junior high kids before. I've never seen a swing like that. Have you? I've never witnessed a swing like that. You know what doesn't swing on the, on the little love Richter scale there? You know what doesn't go back and forth? Jesus' love. He cannot possibly love you or me any more than he does. It, it's maxed out. It's perfect. It's infinite. And he loved them as much when they were having a parade for him as when they were shouting out to kill him. Why? At least one of the reasons is because they were lost. It's a giant amber alert going off in the head of Jesus the whole time he ministered here. He knows it. It never, it never left him. It never shut off. So that heightened awareness that I talked about at the beginning of the message, it's with Jesus' this whole three-year ministry. Everyone he sees, he knows they're lost, and yet they don't know they're lost. He never wavered in his love. He loves the lost. All right, back to Luke, verse 3. So he told them this parable. This is chapter 15. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? By the way, can I answer that for you? What man of you, having 90, 
having uh, 100 sheep, if one is lost, doesn't go after him. Um, all of them. This is a strange story. I mean, if you've got your sheep controlled and one little, little stubborn one wanders off, you're not going to lose the ones unless they're completely protected. You're going to probably let it go. So Jesus is telling a story, and they're probably sitting there going, uh, I, I don't think anybody goes after the one. Except they're not thinking about the one sheep correctly. So he clarifies it. And when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together all his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found the sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who need no repentance. In other words, the people, the sheep were safe. The 99 were in a pen. They either realized their lostness and were safe and were clinging to the shepherd who is an analogy. It points to Jesus. But this one didn't get it. This one wandered off and he's in danger. And he's talking about people who wander off from God and their danger is eternal. They're hellbounders. And if he doesn't go after them, the stakes are much higher than the ones who maybe something could happen in the sheep pen, but not eternal damnation. So he's saying, you don't, you don't get it. Everything is here and now for you. Everything is temporary for you. You know who seems really good at getting lost? Children. I have a brother, sister, brother and sister. They're twins. But my parents tell me that I outdid them 10 to 1 getting lost. I mean, almost, I think that little, that little bungee cord thing they hook to kids now it was invented because of me, pretty much, because I just, I, just, I just wandered off. I'm like, look, a butterfly, and I'm gone. Starting at age of two, they had to find me. Um, why do kids get lost so easy? Because they don't know enough to understand how you get lost, or even what lost is, until they are lost. And they begin to feel that panic. And that's when everyone stops what they're doing and listens. When they hear, I mean, if you are in a supermarket or something and, and there's been a child lost or they say something over the intercom. I mean, everybody stops everything they're doing when a child is lost. Or when you hear a mother crying out or running, and I've seen this before. And thank God if you've never experienced this. Or a mother running and going, where's my child? Where's my baby? I can't find her. Have you ever seen that? Have you ever experienced that? That's a heightened awareness. You love that child anyway, but at that moment, you, you feel every ounce of love you could possibly feel for that child at that moment. Times 10. Because you think that could be the end. It's not a fun feeling for anyone to be lost. It's especially critical and alarming when it's someone fragile and unaware like a child. It's not so much like that, gang, with people that ought to know better. It, it, just, it, it just isn't. Think about this. All right, SpongeBob, imagination. What if you were a Jew and, and you lived in the French countryside in the early 1940s? And you ran into a middle-aged short fellow with a kind of Charlie Chaplin half mustache and a little swastika pinned to his lapel who seemed worried and confused. And he says to you, who are wearing bright yellow stars, you and your wife on your clothes. He says to you, sir, ma'am, I am lost. I am lost. You must help me get back to Germany. I have work to do. Okay, he's lost. Does your heart go out to him? Do you feel for him? 
Is there anybody sitting here right now who doesn't know who this guy is? Let me help you. He's, I'm giving you a scenario where Hitler is hit over the head and finds himself somewhere where he doesn't know where he's at. It's Hitler. They're looking at Hitler. He's lost. I just said lost should make you feel compassion. When you see a lost person, do you feel compassion on this person? No, you don't take him back. You don't feel compassion. You feel hatred. Now try to understand this love that Jesus has. He would take him back. He wouldn't take him back to Germany, but he would love him. And he would care for him, and he would try to tell him the truth. He wouldn't set him back up to sin. He would try to heal him, but he would love him. He wouldn't feel that hatred that we feel. And you look at that and go, how, how do you get over that hurdle? How do you get over that hurdle? I'm going to tell you some other things that you're not going to like this morning. James Dobson. Uh, my family knows the Dobsons. When I went to college, I roomed next to two doors down uh, from his daughter, Danae Dobson. And so I know his heart, and he's a very loving guy. I still have the heart-shaped waffle maker that they got us for our wedding gift. We don't use it that much. Hope he's not listening right now. But he was on TV when a notorious murderer, and, and it escapes you right now, I don't know if it was um, Jeffrey Dahmer or Ted Bundy. Does anybody remember who that was? Ted Bundy, that's right. He had an interview with Ted Bundy. Hideous murderer. Definite hellbounder. A guy who'd done things you can't even speak of. And James Dobson, because he has the same mind of Christ, because he has developed a heart for the lost that Jesus has, was able to look at Ted Bundy and share the love of Christ with him and lead him to Jesus. And some of you right now are very angry that I'm even saying that. Some of you right now are going, yeah, I saw that, I heard about that. What, what kind of a crazy person would do that? How could he? He just got a glimpse of the heart of Jesus. Jesus wouldn't do that. He wouldn't help a murderer, really. What did he say from the cross? What did he say from the cross? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. What did that mean? There were people gambling for his robe. Did he mean they don't know how to gamble correctly? I'm Come on, people, what is it? Did they not know how to nail you to a cross correctly? Forgive them. They did this all wrong, and I'm really hurting. No, forgive them. They don't realize they just nailed the Son of God to the cross. They don't realize that the one is, pur I'm purchasing their eternal freedom right now. They don't realize how much I love them. They are completely clueless. They don't know they're lost. They're confused. Five days earlier, he looked at Jerusalem. Do you remember the verse I shared earlier? He said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I have looked at you and longed to gather you like a hen gathers under her wings, baby chicks. But you wouldn't have it. Why not? Why wouldn't you come to Jesus? Because you don't know you're lost. That's why five days later, he can look at those same people and say, Father, please forgive them. Or please tell me I'm getting through. Please tell me you're starting to see Jesus' heart for the lost. You got to get this. Any church has to get this. You don't, then we're just a gathering of people that sort of learn facts about Jesus and contemplate. I don't know what we contemplate. The Pharisees gang weren't just misguided fools. They were leading people to eternal hell and doing it all with great passion and conviction. 
thinking they were right all along. How can you help people like that? How can you love people like that? Forget that. How can you even like people like that? There's only one way. You have to see the bigger picture. And if some of you are sitting there right now going, I'm uncomfortable because I don't, I don't care about lost people like I should. I know I should care. I've heard this message before. I read God's word. I know I should have the heart of Christ on that. Why don't I? The key is right here, so listen close. If you haven't been paying attention until now, pay attention right now. Here's how you change that. There's only one way. The bigger picture. You don't see their actions. You do that, you're doomed. Because you know what you're going to do? You're going to see all the bad stuff they do that you do too, but it doesn't count when you do it. So you can't look at their actions. You can't look at their ugliness. You can't look at their stubbornness. You can't look at their foolishness. You can't just go, you know, that's why they have the Darwin Awards because that idiot, you can't do that. You can't look at any of that. There's only one thing you can look at that'll make you love them no matter what. And that is their lostness. That's it. If something clicks and you realize where they're really going, it'll make you love them. The amber alert in your head spiritually will begin to work again. It'll start going off and you'll actually hear it. That thing you've shut off have any of you, listen, we live near the train tracks in Monroe, and, and when we first built our house out there, I thought, what have we done? This train sounds like it's coming through our living room. It's incredibly loud. Eight years later, guess what? I can't hear it. I don't hear it at all. I never hear the train. I've gotten used to it. And unfortunately, that's what's happening spiritually with people. You were saved. If you are a Christ follower here, he rescued you. You were a hellbounder. I imagine that moment was pretty significant in your life. You probably thought things like, I got to tell my family. I got to tell my friends. Did you? Or did you get out there and go, I'm taken care of and tuck that little supposed make-believe, get out of hell free card into your back pocket and tell yourself, I'll pull this out when I need it one day and I stand before God. Then something went wrong. You do not understand lostness. And that's why people like Rob Bell, who write books that sound so good and fluffy like Love Wins, do so much damage. So much damage. Oh, there's not really a hell and things will really happen. Really, then why did Jesus talk about it more than heaven? Why talk about a very real place like it's real and try to get people to get adopted as sons and daughters so they don't have to go there if they're not going there anyway because it's not real? And also what it does to believers who read that is it makes them feel better about the fact that they never share their faith. We have a lot of answering to do for that. So in this first of three parables about lost things, Jesus goes after the one sheep who was the most lost. Rejoice with me, says the shepherd. I found my sheep who was lost. Can I say something about sheep? This you ought to know. Dumb. They are dumb comically, hilariously stupid. And some of you aren't going to like this, but if you go through the Old Testament and New Testament, by far and away, the runaway winner of animals that we are compared with is sheep. Some of you are like, what about the lion? Not even close. Not even close. Some of you are going, well, I prefer the lion. Good for you. You're a sheep. I'm a sheep. We're compared with sheep. How dumb are they, Pastor Rob? I'm glad you asked. They're so dumb that they can't even find food or water when it's right there close by. I mean, you can, you can 
set it out and they'll starve to death. Why is that funny? It just, it, you, you have to lead them there. The shepherd has to lead them there. Now, now, now drink, now eat. Instead, they'll just wander aimlessly and get more and more confused and stressed out. You know what? I, I read that about sheep and I go, seems, seems to me Jesus was dead on in saying that we're like sheep. So keep going, verse 7. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven when one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. You know what we learn here that's pretty incredible? Remember the value of the lost? Apparently when one sinner comes home, it's party time in heaven. People are getting saved all the time, so I'm thinking heaven's a pretty happy place right now. It's just a constant party. And that ought to tip us off as to how much the rescue mission means to Jesus, shouldn't it? I mean, when you find something that's lost, or when you, if one of these tragic stories that looks like it's going bad turns out good and you find the child and they're brought home, it's all over the news and there's a big celebration and it's wonderful. We're going to be talking about the most well-known story of this next week with the prodigal son. But you get so relieved you can't help but celebrate. The rescue mission in this case was successful. But here's what I see instead of celebrating with a lot of people. It seems people try to reason that if the Lord celebrates the saving of lost people, why not wander off every now and then and just give God more reason to celebrate? If, he, if it makes him love me more, I'm just going to wander off and do my own thing. How stupid is that? Sheep. Look at it this way. Psalm 51.8 says, Make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which you have broken may rejoice. Some of you right now are going, did you just go ADD, Pastor? What in the world does that have to do with what we're talking about? If a lamb wandered off repeatedly into potentially dangerous places in biblical times, the shepherd would actually break its legs. Then after carefully resetting the bones, he would carry that lamb on his shoulders while the bones healed, weeks and weeks at a time. The breaking part, let me ask you, is it just me or the breaking part doesn't seem very nice, does it? It kind of seems abusive and mean, doesn't it? But the carrying apart on the shoulder seems beautiful, doesn't it? Of all the lambs, this one gets carried around. So why break the legs? Well, you're not going to be able to walk for a while, and that's going to hurt. But if you keep wandering off, eventually you will wander too far, and I can't get you. And that's eternal, and this is temporal. So some of you wonder why you're suffering right now. Some of you wonder why you're in a spot right now. What's God trying to tell you? What's God trying to tell you? You know, this is hard for a lot of people to relate to, but do you realize that if your whole life was nothing but a struggle and pain and anguish, but in the end you loved Jesus and were saved because of that, you will actually stand before him one day and thank him for that. Versus if you're a, a, a rock star and a millionaire and own 10 homes and everything is just great and you drive 45 different million dollar cars, I don't care. Think of the greatest life you can think of, lifestyle rich and famous, and you don't know the Lord. One day you'll stand before God and wish you could trade all of that in. It won't be worth anything to you. And so Jesus is trying to flip that perspective. So we'll get it. So herein lies the reason for not wandering away. Every time you and I think a particular sin is no big deal, think instead Rice Krispies. Does that help? Snap, crackle, pop. Any time that you think wandering away from Jesus as a child of God is no big deal, think I'm going to, 
I love you. I'm going to break some things. I'm going to make you hurt. I'm going to give you a limp. I'll take you out at the knees. Otherwise, you, you just keep walking towards a cliff. I don't know what else to do. I've got to stop you because I love you. Isn't that a different perspective of God? If you can make it through this, it's beautiful love. If you can see the big picture. And not just the little one. So gang, I wonder as a church, when we'll care about lost people like Jesus does. I mean, it's too late when we stand before him in heaven. Two things we're not going to do in heaven, I promise you. We are not going to evangelize and tell the lost because it's too late. And we are not going to sin. So when we were saved, he didn't physically save us and take us to heaven right there. He left us here to finish a mission. And I promise you it's one of those two things that we won't do in heaven. And I'll give you a hint. It's not the sin. It's the rescue mission. You and I, who know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, were left here for the rescue mission. And then to raise up others, to release them for the rescue mission. So, we'll finish with this. I'm going to give you three things about that love that are beautiful. Number one, that love that we just saw from that shepherd, it is unconditional. It's unconditional. Although the lost sheep was one who had strayed, the shepherd didn't say, you know that idiotic sheep? That's the third time with that one. He's just dumb. The others are at least got something going he brought it on himself. I don't care. I mean, he acts like he doesn't care about me, so I don't care about, no, it, no matter what that sheep does, no matter how stubborn, no matter how, how vile, no matter, he still loves him. It's unconditional. It's not conditioned upon how cool of a sheep he is or how much value he has. His love was independent of the obedience of the sheep. The same goes for me and you. And number two, God's love is individual. I love that. He loves each of us as though there were only one of us. You know what I'm tempted to think a lot of times? I'm tempted to think, you know, Billy Graham, he, he was so, I mean, he's so incredible. I, you got to love him more than me, God. Mother Teresa, we were talking about her earlier. You know, she got up at 4 a.m. in the morning, so did Martin Luther, and I've told that, but so did she, to pray for her day to start, to pray for God to use her in a big way before everybody else got up. With a prayer life like that, I wonder, God, she's got to be higher. You got to love her more than me. But his love doesn't work like that. It's individual. And if I would have been the only one, and if you would have been the only one, Christ would have come and died for you. And you'd have nailed him to the cross. And he'd have still died for you. Number three, God's love is emotional. It's not a robotic thing. God's not trying to say, well, my father's holy. I am holy. They must be holy. How do we fix this thing? Okay, I'm going to have to go through the motion. That's emotional. When he finds us wandering, what does he do? Rebuke us, lecture us, beat us, skin us alive? No, he rejoices. He rejoices because that which was lost is found. Our mission, the first part of the rescue, comes from one verse, Luke 19.10. Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. That's it. Really? Really? I feel pretty good about loss. I think I learned a lot about loss today, Pastor Rob, and I'm going to have a good, my loss meter went up. And when I go home, I'm going to look at people, and I think I'm going to even be able to tell that guy's loss, that one's not. So I got that going for me. How about we actually apply it? What do you think? The biggest harvest day for the lost of the entire year is weeks away. I want to start practicing. Let's pray. 
Father, thank you for your heart and your caring for the lost. Thank you that it is not merit-based, God. If it was, I am doomed. I am lost. There's nothing that I can do. God, thank you that you love me in spite of me. Thank you, and I believe this with all my heart, Lord, that you would have come if I was the only one. And God, this is a hurdle for the church to get over, but I pray that today, even as we leave this place, we will look around and we will see lost people, and they will matter to us, and it will haunt us. It's okay. It's a healthy pain. And then, God, help us to taste of this joy that you know all the time. Every time a lost person, a sinner comes home, I pray that we would rejoice in the weeks ahead, Father, as we talk about lost things and people, and especially on Easter as we celebrate your resurrection power. Be with us now, Father. Make us continue to make us a generous church because the fuel to caring comes from generosity. God, you gave your son Jesus the ultimate gift. A heart that will not give is not a heart that loves. You can give God without loving. I'm convinced of that, but you cannot love without giving. It's impossible. So transform us, Lord, even if it's scary to some of us. And make us a church in your image, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.